Let's open our Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I've called the morning's this message a false sense of security. We'll pick it up in verse 5 through 9. Now, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, and then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosed, and his knees knocked against each other. The king king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Now, between chapters 4 and 5, there's a period of time of 25 years. The very last words of Nebuchadnezzar, um, I'm going to repeat a couple times this morning, verse 37 of chapter 4, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Of course, Daniel revealed to him the vision of the metallic image in chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar was that great head of gold. But he would be succeeded by um, uh, the Medes and the Persians represented in silver in the image. And he goes through all the kingdoms that would ever rule and reign. And then he mentions um, a future kingdom. He sees a stone cut out of a mountain and it strikes this image and the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the clay, it's like, like chaff. It just falls down to the ground, and it blows away, and the stone becomes this great mountain. And if you flip back just a couple pages to uh, verse 45, I'll go to 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. And as much as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And Nebuchadnezzar falls at Daniel's feet. And for the moment, he's in awe that Daniel could reveal a dream that he would not even tell the other men what the dream was. Now, he had a night to think about it. And in so doing, he probably woke up the next morning. He says, what do you mean I'm going to be replaced by somebody else? And in defiance, he makes his own image. 60 cubics tall and 6 cubics wide. And again, as we go through, one of our goals is to tie in the book of Daniel to the book of Revelation. 
And this right here, you're starting, you should be thinking Revelation 13 and 666. And an image. And if you don't bow, bow down and worship the image, you're going to get killed. There should be similarities there that you see. Well, chapter 3 is nothing more than defiance. He makes a statue of solid gold, commands all the world leaders to come and worship. And if they don't, they'll be cast into the burning fire. Well, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't do it because of the second commandment. You shall make no graven image or bow out to them. So they stuck out like sore thumbs. Daniel's not there. That's important. And I know I'm being repetitive, but um, doesn't Paul say the same thing? Yes, I know that some of you know these things, but I'm telling you again to stir up your remembrance because we need to hear this over and over. Good place for an amen. Okay, so yes, we're reviewing. So what happens is Daniel's not there, but that's also by design because he's a picture of the church. If he would have been there, of course, he would not have bowed down, but he's not there. Nebuchadnezzar decides to give Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a second go at it. He says, I'm going to give you guys a second chance. This time when you hear the music, bow down. Good. But if you don't, I'm going to heat up that fire seven times hotter. Now, even that number seven is significant because that's the number of years during the Great Tribulation when the stone will eventually, after the tribulation, a kingdom is going to be set up. We pray for it all the time. Thy kingdom come. It's yet future. And they say, well, you know, you've got to respect these guys because they say, um, well, um, we're not going to bow down to your statue. Our God is able to deliver us, but I want you to know that even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow down. Now, that's what we call in the Hebrew chutzpah. <laughs> they had chutzpah. And um, they, of course, were bound, thrown into the fiery furnace. The guys that threw them in, they all died. And the king looks in and he sees, he says, I, didn't we throw three guys in there? And the, the guy said, yeah, it's true, king. Well, I see four. And they're loose. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. And guess what? The fourth one was the Son of God. And the only thing that was burned off in, in that fire, their hair wasn't singed, their clothes wasn't singed, only the things that bound them. And we turned that into a Bible study and why it's necessary to go through fiery trials because when you go through a fiery trial, God only burns off those things that bind you. He has every intention of setting you free. And the other point was that he's always with you in your trial. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So as we get to chapter 4, he, the first couple of verses of chapter 4 is his personal testimony to the entire world. And uh, we read, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, languages who dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Oh, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Chapter 4 is his personal testimony. It begins well, it ends well. But he gets lifted up in pride because he is um, the most powerful dictator this world has ever known. 
And so he starts taking credit for Babylon. I'll talk a little bit about Babylon shortly and its greatness. And um, he says, is this not Babylon that I've built for my majesty, for my glory? And as the words were coming out of his mouth, he was smitten by heaven. And the decree was given that he would become like an animal for the next seven seasons or seven years, seven months, who knows. And that until he would come to his senses. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, his kingdom was taken away from him. He ate grass. His hair grew long. He had long fingernails. And at the end of time, verse 34, he, he snapped out of it somehow. And he realized who he was. And he realized who God was. And the last thing he has to say about it is how great the Most High God is. And then, because he needed to be humbled, the last verse again of chapter 4, those who walk in pride, he's able to abase. 25 years have gone by between chapter 4 and chapter 5. There is no name in the Hebrew for grandfather. You're always the son of David or the son of Jesse or the son of somebody. And they really... So in my Bible where it says father... Um, it's in the side margin, it really says grandfather, and I'll explain that as we get into this this morning, because I'm introducing you to Belshazzar. Let's read the first four verses this morning. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousands. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels, which his father, and there's a little mark by it, because it means really grandfather, because his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords and his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the God of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. In essence, they were mocking the God of heaven that he thought his grandfather had defeated and he's flaunting it and he's mocking. And as a result... What happens, I need to give you a little background here. Because Daniel is so spot on with world history, especially when when we get into Alexander the Great and his generals and um, Rome and Medes and the Persians, to such detail, they said it's impossible for this book to have been written when it was written. It had to be written after the fact, and only then could you have this much detail. Well, those are the critics. Um, there's no archaeological record in history of a king named Belshazzar. So men being men usually will put the higher critics up above the word of God when it is always the other way around. Good place for an amen. The Bible always verifies archaeology. For example, this week they're finding arrowheads of when the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 
A.D. That's what they're uncovering this week. Now they're giving more credence because there's people actually out there that said the Jews were never there. There was never a Holocaust. And um, that's just being dumb. I don't know what other word to put on it. Because the evidence is just so overwhelming in the other direction. John Wolverd, I got to talk to him once. He was going to come to our prophecy conference. He was 94 at the time. And he said, Dwight, I'd love to come to your prophecy conference. If you can get me up to the pulpit, I'll speak. <laughs> well, he was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. And I'm quoting him here. And he says in the book of Daniel, the key to the prophetic revelation um, on his page 117 of his book, it says, until the discovery of uh, Nabonius Cylinder, there was no mention of Belshazzar, whom Daniel declared to be king of Babylon, had, uh, had been found in extra-biblical literature. In other words, there, there was no archaeological evidence until the cylinder by a guy named Nabonius. Nabonius was the father to Belshazzar. Now, this is going to come into play, you understand that, when it says the third ruler in the kingdom. If you can interpret the dream, I'll make him the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Because Belshazzar was second, and Nabonius would have been first. Remember, they conquered the whole world. So his father was probably out doing exploits, maybe taking more territory. Who knows? But uh, at, this, at this place... Um, in which is he is called the, the name of Belshazzar has been found on the cylinder, and I'm actually going to show it to you this morning. So, guys, if you, there's four of them that were found, and um, they all say the same thing, but um, they look just a little bit different. Uh, some are preserved a little bit better, <clears throat> but it was on this cylinder that was discovered. Everybody's familiar with the Rosetta Stone. We could not understand the hieroglyphics that are in the Egyptian tombs until the Rosetta Stone was found, which had Egyptian along with Greek and other languages, so we could finally have the key to understand the hieroglyphics in, in uh, Egypt. Well, same thing here with this cylinder. Um, turn with me to Second Kings chapter 25, and this, this is one of those things where it's his uncle was her aunt, and, and it, it, it goes through how we're going to get to Belshazzar becoming king. <clears throat> um, while you're turning, I'm just going to read a little bit more from John Wolverd. Nebuchadnezzar's reign says that the death of Nebuchadnezzar, his son, evil Merodach, succeeded him in about 561 B.C., now, if you're in Second Kings, chapter 25, look at verse 27. Now, it came to pass in the 37th year, the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, that evil uh, Merodach, the king of Babylon. So here is one that's mentioned in Scripture that was king during the time when Jehoiachin was taken into captivity. In the year that he began to reign, he released Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, from his prison. So here was one of the line. Um, you can make your way back to Daniel. <clears throat> Evil Merodach was murdered 
by Nergal Sherazir, who had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and now replaced him on the throne. Um, it was this Nergal Sherazir who was succeeded by his young son, who reigned only a few months before he was murdered by Nabonius, the husband of another of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Nabonius, the last ruler of the Babylonian Empire, spent much of his time away from the kingdom on foreign affairs, and Belshazzar, who we started reading here in chapter 5, Belshazzar, his son, remained at Babylon as a co-regent. So he's really not king, but he has been appointed by his father, Nabonius, um, to be reigning in his stead. When I was in high school and my parents went away, what did you do? <laughs> Somebody, everybody knows, but you're afraid to say it. You had a party. <laughs> and you were, you were underage, but that didn't stop anything. So who knows if that's the case or not. But that's the setting. He's not king. He's co-regent. And um, uh, the events here inside the palace is he's mocking God. And uh, he's thinking things through. And now he begins to mock God by going into the treasure chest and taking out these vessels that were holy vessels unto the Lord. And by so doing, mocking God. Now, at this point, um, that's, this is what's taking inside the city. They're having a party, okay? Let me let you know what is going on outside the city walls. During the feast of Belshazzar here, uh, Gorbias, he was a general of the Median army. They had the city of Babylon surrounded while these guys are partying hardy. Uh, this guy's name is hard to pronounce, Xenophon. The Greek historian describes how they took the city by detouring a channel of the Euphrates rivers back to its main channel and then letting the armies flow under the walls of the city. In other words, Belshazzar had a false sense of security. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to thousands of his lords, drank wine before the thousands. Note the arrogance of this young upstart Belshazzar who puts on his lavish affair. While the armies of the Medes were in full view of the city, perhaps Belshazzar thought the city was impregnable. Nebuchadnezzar had built it um, uh, with something that would withstand any siege. Now catch this. The city was actually 15 miles square. It was made out of brick. It was 300 feet wall, tall were its walls. And on the top of these walls, you could have four chariots to travel best around the entire city wall. In other words, they could have put a freeway around the top of the city. He had supplies of grain and water, water to last for years. In fact, there was a channel of the Euphrates that went right through the city. And they have absolutely no concern that the whole Bede Egyptian army, Egyptian, 
Medan Persian army are completely surrounding them, not knowing that this wise general diverts the Euphrates so that the water level goes down and the whole army just walks right into the city. And just like the Assyrians, one angel took out 185 Assyrians in one night, no more Assyrian Empire. In one night, the Babylonian Empire is going to come to an end. In one night. Because of this man's arrogance. Let me point this out at this time. With Nebuchadnezzar, he was arrogant, defiant, built a golden image, and yet the Lord gave him a second shot. He gave him another dream and vision. And uh, he spent some time in solitary, so to speak, out in, the, out in the wild, and he came to his senses, just like the prodigal son. Not so here. This guy doesn't get any second chances. And it tells me a lot about the nature of our God, and there's actually places where the Lord says, no, not this time. I'm drawing a line here. In other words, you know the scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. And to whom little is given, little is required. This guy should have known better. He knew all the stories about his great-grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's not taking any of it to heart about the God of heaven. And so we find that brings us to our text in chapter 5. Verse 5, it says, In that same hour a finger of a man's hand appeared opposite the, the lampstand and the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now just think about this. Out of nowhere comes a hand and begins to write on the wall. Now that will break up your party really quick. <laughs> it's like you hear the garage door opening and your parents are home. <laughs> then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loose and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me its interpretation, I'm going to put him in purple, give him a chain of gold around his neck, and he will be third in the ruler of the kingdom. You see, now it makes sense. He's that he can, he can only make him third because he himself is second. His father is out, the, the king is out doing whatever business. So that's why he could only make him the third. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known the king's interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. God now directly intervenes. He does not speak by dream or vision. Because this is a man who he doesn't intend to reach. God would not endure this insult to heaven, so he writes on the banquet wall, it's done, it's over, and he is angry. You know that God gets angry? I'd like to turn, have you turn with me to uh, John chapter 8 in the New Testament. There's three times... That I'm aware of in the Bible where we have the finger of God writing. First of all, all it was on the clay tablets given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Then we have the writing on the wall in Babylon, the night that Babylon fell. And then in John chapter 8, one of my favorite stories, let's pick it up in verse 1, we have the finger of God 
once again writing. But he's angry. And I want you to see, sort of reading between the lines here, that his anger is building. Verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Would you, would you zero in on that? What did Jesus do? He came into the temple, and then he started pacing the cage back and forth, really getting excited, really raising his hands, making a motion, doing this. No, what did he do? He sat down. And there's something about sitting down that just puts people at ease. So I have a big problem with the over-sensationalism that I see that's there really to stir you up. Not to teach you up, but to stir you up. To leave you with an emotional experience rather than a a well-fed meal. Are you tracking with me on that one? Most of what's out there today is psyching people up. Jesus didn't do that at all. He sat down. He put the people at ease. He wanted them to listen. He wanted them to digest. And he began to teach, but the scribes and Pharisees, verse 3, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what did you say? You see, the word was out on Jesus. He was hanging out with prostitutes. He was hanging out with tax collectors. He was hanging out with people of questionable character. And uh, he was called a friend of sinners. Well, here, the law is clear about being caught in the act of adultery. And they knew what the law said, but you're supposed to be a friend of sinners. What do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing him, that they might find something of which to accuse him. They could have cared less about this woman. Whether she lived, whether she died, they could have cared less. But they just wanted to get something on Jesus. Then Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he had not heard. In other words, he's ignoring them for now. First time he's just ignoring them. But they're not going away. So when they continued asking him and raised him up, he said to them, now it's being elevated, okay, he who was without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Well, they still are there. They're not leaving. And believe me, at this point, I believe the Lord is angry. And I believe he was angry when he said, Belshazzar, your number's up. It's over. And when he looked at these men who were accusing this woman of being an act of adultery, I have two questions that that come up here. How do they know where to find her, number one? And where was the man? (laughs) If it was the very act, the last I heard, it took two, you know. And so where was he? The law called for both of them. Oh, they let the guy go. They were just brought the woman in, threw her down. And I believe that Jesus, and you'll never hear this, that Jesus gets angry. And I, at this point, believe he is angry 
So how does he get rid of these self-righteous, hypocritical scribes and Pharisees? And as he began to write on the ground, of course, we could only speculate. What did he write? But it says, those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. The, the Lord started with the one who should have known better, the eldest. He starts with that guy. I think he wrote adultery. See, there isn't anything when you study the Gospel of John. The one thing that you learn is that the Lord knows everything about every person that's ever mentioned in the book, including these guys. So he knew as they were, you know, casting the stone at her, wanting her to be stoned. Um, He looks up at the eldest and even to the least, and all one by one he's writing thief or liar or adulterer, fornicator, stealer, murderer. He just was writing these things down. Imagine me right going down. And then I look up and it says adulterer and he looks you square square in the eyes. What do you do? I just remembered I I told my wife I'd bring her home a loaf of bread and I gotta go pick it up right now. No, they 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 had to get out. And can you imagine the all seeing eyes of the Lord? looking right through you. We use that terminology. I can see right through you, man. Well, believe me, Jesus could see right through them. And they knew it. And one by one, they got out of there. And he was angry. He was angry at their hypocrisy. He was angry that they were willing to put this woman to death just so that they could trap Jesus somehow. And he knew all of it. And when Jesus raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And he sa- she says, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one what? Well, oh, she called him Lord. Here Jesus, she heard of Jesus, who he was. Now Jesus is defending her and Jesus is in her corner. Well, like the thief on the cross, it was one of those split minute Things where I believe you are the Lord. And she calls him such. No one, Lord. And Jesus says, and neither do I condemn you. Go and get six months of counseling, and everything will be fine after that. No. We're accountable for ourselves. When the Lord talks to us, we either say, yes, Lord, or no, Lord. Good place for an amen. amen. You know, we have the word of God. You have your own conscience. You don't walk before me or any other man. You walk before the Lord and his word. And he simply said, don't do that anymore. Stop it. And you have a free will, and you can exercise it any way you want to. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. Sin no more. I go here for one reason. The writing on the wall that says Belshazzar, it's over. And you've mocked me, and I will not be mocked. And to these self-righteous Pharisees, um, concerning his anger to them, this is just one place. In Matthew 23, this is, you know, do you know that it's okay to be angry? The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. There's things going on in our, our world that if we're not angry at, then there's something wrong with us. Jesus said in Matthew 23 to this 
group of self-righteous hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you're not going in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They were actually an obstacle for people to get to go to heaven. And when I look at what's on some Christian TV program, they're not presenting the gospel. They're presenting a fluffy, feel-good message that tells you that God, that it's all about the here and the now. When the Lord says just the opposite. No, it's not about the here and the now, but it's about the later. And uh, we have a short period of time here to be faithful in little here so we can be faithful over much later. Another good place for an amen. amen. But we're so preconditioned, and the, the church has succumbed to society where we're becoming more like them instead of us being the influence and teaching them, no, 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 the way's narrow. Few be that find it, and it's difficult. But broad is the way, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many will find that way. Verse 31, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus said, which of the prophets didn't you murder that God sent to them? He said, you serpent, you brood of vipers. Well, Jesus, that's not very loving talk. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus said words like that. He sure did. He went into the temple one day in Matthew 21 and he saw the money changers. And as they were changing the money, they were making a profit on the side, usury, interest. And the Lord was upset. He made a whip. And he went into that temple and he started turning over tables. And I imagine he was creating quite a scene. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be made a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves making money off the gospel. My Bible says, freely we received. Our salvation is free. Oh, it's not that it didn't cost something. It cost the most important commodity the universe has ever known, the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more valuable. So it's not free. It costs something. But it's been freely given to us if we'll receive it. Then we are to freely represent that here. Well, what about the bookstore? You sell books in a bookstore. Well, not really. Whatever it costs us, that's what we sell it to you for. It would scare me to do it any other way or to ever talk about business while we're here to study God's word and to worship him. This is not the place for business. This is a place to study God's word and to worship him. Another good place for an amen. That's what we're here for. And uh, But he said, you've made it into a den of thieves. All right, let's go back to Daniel 10 through 29. We'll have the interpretation. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever, and don't let your heart uh, trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, see, it's really grandfather if you read the italics there, 
Your father, the king, made him chief of magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. In other words, he was top dog. Now, this is important when it comes around to Christmas time, because Daniel, remember, when Babylon falls, he's the number one guy at all of Babylon. He has a title called um, Chief of the Magi. And so how is it that these Persians, that's where the kingdom now is going to become the Medes and the Persians, here is the guy who is now instructing as this transformation of power goes from Babylonian to Medo-Persian, Daniel's still around. And now we find these wise men. We think there's three because of the gifts. I think there was a lot more. But he was top dog of all the wise men and now the, the Medes and the Persians come in, and they're Persians. Well, how do they know where to look for the Messiah and the star that follows? Well, Daniel had a lot to do with it. You can be sure of it. He was the, the chief of it. We'll keep that one for New Year's, Christmas Eve. And but 12, inasmuch as an excellent uh, spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that king who is, who is one of the captives from Judah, who my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give me the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its inscription, you shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be a third ruler in the kingdom. I like what Daniel says here. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your, kings be for, let your gifts be for yourself. And says, in other words, you can keep it not interested. And I, but I'm going to read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he set up. Whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the heart of a beast, and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, You have not humbled your heart. This next part is important. Although you knew all of these things, you knew about what your father, your grandfather went through. You knew what God did to humble him. 
And even though you knew all of this, you mock my God. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of the house before you, and you have, you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see. They can't hear or know. And this next part here, and the God who holds your breath in his hand owns all your ways you have not glorified. So in these two verses here, 22 and 23, I want to get a little, do a little rabbit trail here. What's being said here is you knew all this, and even though you knew all this, you worshiped these other gods, and you did not give him the glory as if he was expecting to get glory from this king, not having learned the lesson of his great-grandfather. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17 in the New Testament. You know that the Lord expects us to worship and praise him? That comes from Luke 17, picking up at verse 11. There are ten lepers. In verse 11 of chapter 17 of Luke, it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then he entered a certain village, and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now that's not ordinarily what a leper would say. They would have to yell out, but it was unclean, unclean. Keep your distance, because we're lepers, but not these guys. They heard about Jesus. So they say, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw that, he said, okay, go show yourself to the priest. Well, why do that? Because leprosy in Jesus' time is an incurable disease. You died of leprosy. But yet when you read the law, In Leviticus, there's a provision for healing in the day of the leopard, and then instructions are given on what they're to do. They're to go to the priest, and the priest is going to check them out and look. And then he's going to put them in um, um, confinement for seven days. And then he's going to check them again after seven days. And after seven days, if they're still clear, then he'll release them. They were contagious, but Even though it can't be cured, the word of God makes provision for Jesus doing this miracle. And so that's why he says, go show yourself to the priest. Remember, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I have not. I've come to fulfill it. But what does that mean? That everything that the law says I can do perfectly, including what do you do with a leper when he gets cleansed? You go show it to the priest. But he kept all the commandments. That's why Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only one who fulfilled all of them. You and I have broken how many of them? All of them. Then he says, and so as they went, so they're just on their way to see the priest, they were all cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, 
glorifying God, and he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he, the Lord tells us he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, uh, weren't there ten that were cleansed? Where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except for this foreigner? And he says to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. The Lord was actually looking for these other guys to come back and say thank you too. But only one did. What's your point, Dwight? Belshazzar, you knew how God humbled your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. And you just blew him off. And not only that, but you mocked God by taking the golden vessels and used them to praise gods of gold and silver. And this very God that holds his breath in your hand, you've mocked. All right, let's go back to Daniel. That's 2023. Let's go to 24, the interpretation. Then the finger of the hand was sent from him, and the writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, or many, many, tekel, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Many. God has numbered your kingdom, and he has finished it. Tekel, you have been found and weighed in the balance, and you have found wanting. Perez, Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then it says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, And the Medes, Darius the Mede, received the kingdom being 62 years old. Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was not expecting to die that night. Can I say that again? Belshazzar, the king, he wasn't expecting on dying that night. He was partying. He wasn't expecting on dying. You see, he had a false sense of security. His security was in 300-foot walls, 450-foot towers. There's no way any army's getting in. It was a false sense of security, and he had no idea that that night would be his last night. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 in the New Testament. We have a parable of the rich... Fool. Chapter 12, picking it up with verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said, Be careful, take heed, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable of them, saying, You know, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no more room to store all my crops? So I said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns. 
I will store all my crops and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then question, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Belshazzar and the man in this parable have one thing in common. They had a false sense of security. Um, In modern day terms, instead of bigger barns, I might say 401ks or savings or investments or where you put your security that you're trusting in, not knowing that today could be your last. False sense of security for Belshazzar, false sense of security for this man who could take absolutely nothing with him when he died that night. That night, he was going to die Um, And that night, like Belshazzar, he had no concept that God held his very breath in his hand. So that leads to this question, as we begin to wind up. Where do you place your security? Where does your security lie? There is no real security outside of the shepherd of our souls. Like Daniel said to Belshazzar, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and all and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And so his security was in the strength of his palace, and he mocked God instead of praising the Lord. What what the Lord has done for us is what's your your security? I ask Eric, it's good to have Eric back, Eric and Lori. And um, I asked him to do this song for Sunday, Psalm 119. It's, you are my hiding place and my shield, my tower, my buckler. That's David's security blanket. That's who he puts his security in. So this is the personal stuff now where it can get convicting. That's good. Remember, trials and getting um, exhorted, we're to exhort one another daily, doesn't that, is that what it says? We're to exhort one another daily. And when we, when we see where the priorities lie in the scripture, what God is really interested is not so much what you can do for him, but because he calls you his bride, he wants gratitude and affection. This is on a personal love, like our psalm this morning is, 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 says, it's a love song to our creator. So we sing the song, you are my hiding place. You're the one I find my security in. In Job 24, 22 to 24, but God draws the mighty away with his power. He raises up, but no one is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it. Yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while. Then they are gone. They are brought low They are taken out of the way like others. They dry out like the heads of grain. 
What can we glean from our study this morning? Just making our way through the Bible, happen to be in Daniel chapter 5. What can we glean from it? Well, number one, it's possible to cross the line with our God. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Where, and what that basically is, is when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's a conviction and an awareness that it's true, that you harden your heart and say no. You just cross the line. Thinking that there might be some other way to sneak in the back door. Well, there's no other name that is written except the Lord Jesus Christ for a man to have eternal life. Not a good place for an amen. That sort of puts you in an exclusive group. And in these days, not a very popular one. Question is, where are you going to put your security? So, God worked with Nebuchadnezzar, but not with his grandson, Belshazzar. He knew better, yet mocked God. Nebuchadnezzar's last recorded words in the Bible is those found, the very last thing he says, and those who walk in pride, he's able to abase. He's able to take you through trials, which is good, so that he can bring you to a place where you actually really are grateful in here, and it's genuine. You know, the Lord says you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. I actually know what that means. It means that I have nothing to do with my salvation. It's all the work of the cross. I simply accept it as a gift. And when somebody gives you a gift, what do you say? No, no, you say, let me give you five bucks for it anyway. What an insult. A gift that could never be earned or purchased or deserved is free. What that should create in us, God, there is that line that will cross. He's patient. He's long, he is long-suffering. But the Lord said in Genesis, my spirit, I won't always strive with you. If you insist on saying no, well, he gave you a free will, and you can exercise it. The writing on the wall for Belshazzar, it is over for you. I'm not even going to give you a dream. You've crossed the line by, by mocking me. And God, in his anger, took him out. And he was history that night. Our God is a God of love. The, but the Lord is merciful and gracious. Psalm 103, he's slow to anger. Just like he was slow to anger when he was writing in the ground, giving the guys a chance to take off, but they wouldn't go. So he got rid of them in his own way. And I believe he was angry when he did so. Yet his wrath right now, even though he is a God of love, not willing that any should perish, there's coming a time that he is going to take his bride out of here. And Revelation 6, again, as much as I can, I want to try to tie these two books together. Verse 17 is the wrath of the Lamb, where God is going to pour out wrath on this world like it's never known before. You see, nobody gets away with anything. And um, he's going to have his time, the time of the, the great indignation. So that's number one. Number two, God expects us to be grateful for what he's done for us, and he really wants us to praise him. Um, I don't do it every morning, but Judy and I, we have our songbooks on the, on the kitchen table, and sometimes it's devotions, but sometimes we just like to sing. At least that's what I call it. 
The Bible calls it making a joyful noise unto the Lord. <laughs> but it's from the heart anyway. But that's all he really wants, is for us to be grateful, to have an attitude of gratitude for what he's done. We'll give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among his people. Has the Lord given you a divine appointment this week? Tell somebody. It'll bless them. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath day. It's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. And then Psalm 107, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Belshazzar and the man with the bigger barn syndrome didn't know that that would be the last day of their life. And so I close with this question this morning. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Or would you go to hell? Some would say, I don't believe in hell. Think God, a loving God, would create a hell? I don't believe in hell. What I have to say to that is, well, someday you will. Someday you will. Someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And someday, whether we're raptured or we die... There's only two options. There is heaven and there is hell. So if you're not sure you're saved and you have made your peace with God, like it says in Romans 1, therefore having been justified by faith in his finished work on the cross, I've made my peace with God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually know what it means when it talks about the peace that passes human understanding. I should be freaking out over this issue, but I'm not. Why? Well, Romans tells me he's working it out to my good. And the trial that I'm in is for my good to only make me more like him. So once you understand what the word of God teaches about these issues, you take on Paul's attitude when he had his thorn in the flesh. I don't want it. Get rid of it. And he says, no, Paul, that stays. It'll keep you humble. When you're weak, then you're strong. I get it, he says. Therefore, I'll gladly rejoice in my infirmities. The power of God might rest upon me. That's not a worldly thinking concept. That is a biblically trained concept. So what is the gospel? And maybe you're here this morning, and the question is a real one. You have no guarantees for tomorrow. Neither do I. Are you saved? Are you born again? Can you point to a time and a place where you said, Lord, I give my life to you here and now. And if you don't know how easy it is to do that, I'm going to quote 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul just tells us what the gospel is. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you, were, in which you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number one, that he was buried and that he rose again the 
third day according to the scriptures. This was the main topic in men's prayer yesterday. The importance of the resurrection. And if there, there is no resurrection and Christ didn't die for our sins, then we're still in our sins and we're men most miserable. And we have no hope whatsoever. But that's not the case. Jesus did die for your sins. What's the issue? Sin is the issue. There's only one person who ever came here and said, this is the issue and I'm the only one who can deal with it. Ball in your court. Are you going to accept it or are you going to reject it? This morning, we're going to stand and close in prayer. And just between you and Jesus, because I believe it's a personal thing in your own heart, if you're not sure, I'm going to pray a simple prayer for those watching live stream or those here this morning that have never really given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, the scripture that goes along with it is, today if you hear his voice or you sense his presence, don't harden your heart. Don't be like Belshazzar. But be humble. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you that this is truth. You know, gang, this is either going to ring true in your heart, that what is being said is, that's truth. I, I know truth when I hear it. And I know... When somebody's trying to take advantage of me, I, cannot, I can detect that too. You know in your heart whether or not the gospel is true. The question is, have you responded for it? Let's stand, and we'll close with that word of prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and the things that we've learned this morning. That um, it's possible to cross the line and not give a guy a second chance. We've also learned this morning that there's it's been appointed unto man to die. You went you you know when the appointment is we don't. And so Lord I know I don't want to leave this building without being sure because I believe what you taught about heaven and hell. So if you're here this morning and you've never prayed this prayer, you can pray it to yourself and we'll close this morning. Oh God, I am a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. I want to turn from my sin. And I receive Jesus Christ this morning as my Savior. June 4th, 2017. I confess him as my Lord. And from now on I want to follow him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.